Charting a course for sustainable space, this is Space to Grow, an astro-scale and market-scale podcast with your hosts, Chris Blackerby and Charity Whedon. Hey, Ellen, welcome to Space to Grow. Thank you. It's really great to be here with you guys. It is fantastic to see you again. I think uh, we, we all have a long history together at various times working through various things in various countries. And it's so nice to see you on this podcast. And as I was doing research for this, Ellen, before and just kind of seeing where you'd been on recently, I saw you had hosted a podcast or an inner kind of a session, a panel session with one Charity Whedon as a guest, (laughs) I noticed. So it's like the shoe is on the other foot here. Which which, which do you prefer? Do you you like the hosting side or do you want the the, uh, guest? You know, I... I actually really, um, really enjoy hosting because I, for example, I just interviewed the astronaut Chris Cassidy um, for an event at Decatur House, which is um, Mm -hmm. by the White House. And that was super interesting because, you know, the guy was a Navy SEAL and he'd done all these incredible things. And so you just never know where the conversation's going to go. We were talking about leadership and, um, you know. Was this in front of an audience? You got to kill the alligator next, right next to the boat. That's a new phrase for me. So. Oh, wow. That's good. (laughs) <laughs> I, I guess take take care of the problems that are threatening you right now. Yeah. Is that it? Yeah. 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 Was it in front of an audience or was it a, was it a. We, you know, it was supposed to be, but we went virtual at the last minute. Um, it was last. Minute, so. Of course, of course, of course. Well, it, I saw the, the panel you had um, with, with charity and, uh, and it was very good. It was really cool. So it was a nice job. And you did, you did a few interviews off of that, I think, right. There's a few different panel sessions. I did. I did too for that that event, and it was really interesting. And it's one of my favorite subjects to talk about because I, I think the whole what's going on is in Leo is really exciting. I think the next decade is going to be really, um, really, really important for saying, can we move into this space economy in a big way? Are we going to continue to have kind of roadblocks and setbacks? You know, what's going to happen? And I just think it's a super interesting time to to think about. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, really appreciate you, you know, moderating that panel. And uh, just just your background is really interesting as well. And working in space science technology development for many years. And we, we understand that your dad worked at NASA as well. Is that true? And so you had a lot of inspiration from him to maybe get into this business? I did. I did. You know, I'm one of those weird people. I went to my first rocket launch when I was four years old. So he was a rocket engineer. He started at NASA when it was still NACA. Mm -hmm. Uh, And he was working on the sloshing of fuel in uh, rocket tanks, the early rockets, it was causing them to destabilize. So I went to my first launch um, in 1964, 65 down at the Cape. um, And it, it was an uncrewed Atlas one of the early Atlas Centaur launches. And it went up like 10 feet and blew up on the launch pad. Wow. Um, so Do people you remember are always it? like, why did you never want to become an astronaut? Like, I don't know about that. <laughs> so, Do you, rem- you were four. Do you remember? Do you remember it? I, I do remember it. I remember it really distinctly because it, it was this giant, like huge explosion, mushroom cloud. And what I don't remember, which my mother has said, I have an older sister, she's two and a half years older, that apparently my sister and I went nonlinear, like, hysterical because we had this vision that our father like stood next to the rocket with a big button you know and and we were young enough so i think that Mm -hmm. is why because i'm like you i'm like why do you remember this at four years old well a giant mushroom cloud explosion is pretty memorable (laughs) but what i the part i don't remember is that apparently we got quite upset and i Mm -hmm. think that's what kind of embedded the memory 
um, in me. But it's, you, you know, I, I love launches to this day. It's like my favorite thing is going to launches. Do you still get, still get nervous at launches or are you? Yes. Yeah. Horribly. Okay. Horribly. And I worked on um, two shuttle missions. We had an instrument when I was at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory. We flew a radar on the shuttle in 92 twice in 94. And in that case, it was even more stressful because I had trained the crew mm. and I knew both crews really well. Um, and that was just like, I couldn't watch the launch. I didn't watch either launch. I just, I was so nervous. I was just like, I can't deal with this. Um, so yeah, I always get nervous, but it's exciting. You know, there's nothing like that, especially when it's, um, when it's hardware that you've been able to visit in a high bay. I mean, you could, you better believe I was sobbing at that picture of James Webb, mm-hmm. you know, that last photo they got of James Webb moving out from the earth. Cause I went and when, when the telescope, when the mirrors were at Goddard Space Flight Center here in Maryland, I used to go visit them all the time. It was kind of pathetic. Um, and so to know this hardware that you, you know, have had this, I'm going to cry, you know, this, it, it's just amazing to think that's now out in space and it's going to be out doing all this amazing science. It's really exciting. It's a great business to be in. It's it's so emotional. And and going to every launch I've been to, I've, I've basically, I've cried and I don't, I didn't have the connection that you did on these. And uh, and when we launched our first satellite with this company or the last one we launched in March of last year, so, so emotional. So yeah, it all, it all is, it's just, it is an incredible business, but did you, but you wanted to get though into, after seeing this, your dad, I assume was an engineer working on sloshing of fuel. Did you, mm-hmm. did you move for the science engineering? Did you try to figure out which way or was there a question? You know, at that point, I will say everyone at NASA looked like my dad, you know, they were white guys with crew cuts, you know? And and so the idea that I would work at NASA was pretty far from my head because Uh, you saw almost no women and, you know, it just didn't seem like a path to me. And I was a kid who picked up rocks all the time. In fact, to this day, my husband's like, do we have to have rocks in every room of the house? And the answer is yes. Um, And I just thought, I want to be a scientist. And so I would look around trying to find stories of women in science. And it was like Marie Curie, you know, Marie Curie, Marie Curie. You're like, great. I don't want to be a chemist. But at that time, we used to get National Geographic because everybody did. And there were these stories of Mary Leakey, like uncovering human origins in Africa and Jane Goodall. And I thought, I want to be an archaeologist. So I actually really right away looked towards science because it it seemed like a path where I could see women succeeding. Hmm. Um, and it wasn't till, and this is, you know, one of these pretentious stories. I wasn't, when I was 14, my dad was in charge of the rockets that were launching the Viking spacecraft, the first two landers on Mars. And we were down at the Cape and they were having talks for NASA kids that, you know, and families that were down for the launch. And so you had Carl Sagan talking about <gasps> searching wow. for life on Mars and why we were going to Mars and studying the geology of Mars. And I'm like, space rocks like wow geology this is you know i didn't know you could do i can combine nasa which i'd been you know defending you know at 10 years old people in my class would go they should stop spending money on nasa and i'd be like no that's wrong plus it pays my dad's salary um you know but this idea that you could you know this idea of trying to figure out how do planets form how does that help us understand the earth better at age 14, I was like, I'm going to be a planetary geologist. And that's what I did. It's not a normal story. I'm always <laughs> curious, like to other planetary geologists, I'm like, how did you get interested in that? Because I have a weird story. Well, you have to find that that passion and that that kind of fire in you when you're younger. And the fact that you could combine 
those two things. I mean, space has everything <laughs> associated it with, with it. Like I love art and I love space. I'm going to do space art, right? There is, there are those op opportunities and not only were you a scientist, but you rose to be chief scientist of NASA. Can you tell us about that experience? And, you know, it, were there some science and technology developments that you worked on and how they shape it, the space industry today? Yeah, it was it was an amazing job and an amazing opportunity. And I had just come off spending five years working on a mission proposal to go to Titan, one of Saturn's moons, to send a small boat there. And it ended up failing. And so at that point, I was really bummed out. I'm like, oh, you know, maybe I should do something else. And I had this phone call saying, do you want to be inter interviewed to be chief scientist of NASA? And I'm like, well, OK, I'm still mad about that boat thing. But mm -hmm. um, and, you know, working with Charlie Bolden and then also Dave Newman, when she came in as deputy administrator, getting to work with Chris, you know, it, it was just an amazing time to be at NASA because we were really focusing on how do we use NASA data to help around climate change? How do we get NASA data into the hands of people around the world so they can become more resilient to the effects of, of climate change through a program called Severe? That's one of my um, favorite NASA programs. Um, really, at that point, we were really pushing the James Webb Space Telescope, which again, thankfully launched, it was it was having all kinds of trouble. And you're thinking, you know, are we going to keep moving on this mission or not? And, and, you know, so we're so grateful that it's now in space, fully deployed. Um, but one of the things that really intrigued me, frankly, because a lot of a lot of the science programs are driven by these big decadal surveys that are done by the, out of the National Academy of Sciences. It's a big scientific consensus for the community. So I was really looking around NASA thinking, what, what can I work on? What can I help move forward? And I got really intrigued by this idea of low Earth orbit commercialization. What were we doing with the space station? And I would hear people saying, you know, we're going to have this low Earth orbit vibrant economy. And you're like, okay, we're here. And how do you get to there? And are we doing the right things? Are we making the right investments so that we can get from where we are to this future that we all want to see happen. So I got really interested in that. And I got really interested in this question of um, how do you, working with David Miller at the time, who, um, who was the chief technologist at the time, how do you think about architectures to Mars that really, to get humans to Mars, that really build in flexibility, that really bring in kind of multiple pathways? Because if you're trying to do something over 10, 15, 20 years, technology is going to change, funding situation is going to change. And so with those uncertainties, how you how do you develop resilient architectures, you know, to get from here to there? And so we worked, I ended up working much more on human spaceflight um, programs than I did on sort of my background, which was coming out of pure science, partially because I just found them to be really, really fascinating um, problems. So how do you, so you were, you were talking about how, how do we get from here to there in LEO commercialization or in, in development of LEO? This was five years ago or so, right? About 2014, right. 2013. So, so yeah, getting to be six, seven years ago now. How, how, how have we done as a community? Have we gotten from here to there successfully so far? Or we're not there yet, probably. But We're not there yet. But I, I feel like we're, we're moving in the right direction. And it's a couple things. And frankly, some of the right direction has really come from the private sector, right? Because you've seen... Um, you know, one of the big issues is always going to be launch costs because um, the cost of up mass and down mass, frankly, 
um, is always going to be a big issue. So the fact that you have all these rocket companies, and I think a lot of the general public doesn't understand, like, why are these people all developing rockets? Whereas those of us who are the kind of inside baseball people understand um, unless you can bring down the cost of mass to orbit and of returning things, it's going to prevent or really inhibit a broad LEO-based economy. Because if you think of something like someone trying to do drug development on the International Space Station, if you're working on a lab on Earth, you can go down a path, you can say, you know, that drug development angle didn't work. I've got it change my experiment slightly and now go in a different direction. You iterate, you iterate, and you iterate. That's how science works. Well, if I'm doing drug development and experiments on the space station and you say, well, you can have a launch six or eight months from now, and I'm going to limit how much mass you can have, and I'm not going to let you bring down the results of your experiment because there's a giant queue and now you're going to sit in the queue. Right. How is, how is that, how is a company going to work in that kind of environment? So this issue of up and down mass, I think is, is so critical. And it's really nice over these intervening years to see the private sector really moving forward. Um, and then as you guys well know, there's also these kind of environmental issues, you know, space is a global commons. And so what are their, what are the threats to that? that commons. And one of them is obviously space debris. And, you know, we're seeing that hugely right after this Russian um, ASAT test, where all of a sudden there's an abundance of, of, of debris. And we're seeing that debris apparently has run into another satellite, you know, when there's close encounters between satellites. So I also got really interested in that through my work through the World Economic Forum, where we were working on a space sustainability index. So how do you think of ways to get not just the industry, not just governments, but the industry thinking about how do we how do we become good players to make sure that space stays this great environment? And I, I do think there's been progress. Where I think we don't have enough progress, frankly, is investment in some of the research that we do because because if you're you're trying to find that killer app, right? That drug development, that you know fiber you know, um, fiber optic cable development, like what is the economic development that we're going to see in space that makes companies want to put their own money, not just government investment. And I think sometimes people get a little confused about, you know, if the government's paying for it, that's not really a vibrant economy. You want companies coming in, you want investors from outside coming in. And we're seeing some of that. And we especially see it where it's been successful, like the comms industry or increasingly the earth observation industry, where, where there's a there there and companies are like, well, I want to go do that because I'm going to go make money on it. My question is, where are we going to get to that point in things like pharmaceuticals, in any kind of manufacturing? We're not there yet, but we could be. And I'm, I remain optimistic about it. Just that going. was a lot. Sorry, I did babble. There. So I much. No, there's so many, so many good things to go off of that. Spread across so many uh, things we want to ask you, actually. Yeah. I, just back to Leo commercialization, I, I feel that there's an influx of private uh, commercial habitats being formed right now. And do you feel that that's the having these successful will help uh, increase that iteration process for research and development, science and technology? And completely agree with you that connecting the dots to the economic rationale of these private um, space uh, activities is important here. So will these commercial habitats uh, 
uh, really move the needle when it comes to science and technology? And how will they create a new market? You know, I think they're a really important piece of it because um, to me, if you think about is, is government investment going where there's going to be the biggest economic payoff? Because if we're investing in lots of things, but only four or five of them actually have a chance of coming to fruition, you really want to see the government putting their money into where we can sort of jumpstart commercialization. And clearly habitats is one of those things, though, again, I caution if the only people buying the habitats are governments, you're, you're just getting more people building habitats you're, you know, that the government can purchase. And so right, maybe the cost comes down. What I really want to see are private space stations. So when you see things like people talking about things like orbital reef or you know, you're going beyond, all right, this is just a module for the ISS or this is just a replacement of the ISS that NASA buys, that's still just government investment in LEO. What I want to see is a pharmaceutical company investing in part of a habitat. You know, maybe the, the, it's not that the government goes away, um, but I'm even fighting against this concept of the anchor tenant. You know, the government's always going to be the anchor tenant. Well, maybe to start out, they're the anchor tenant, but then can you reduce government investment and have more private company investment come in? And again, I think you just right now, you, you have to be really laser focused on where you think the biggest payoff is for the commercial industry to see that payoff. Because frankly, we're never going to get to Mars, which is what I want to do. This is part of the reason I got interested in this. The, the U.S. spends a lot of money in, in low Earth orbit. I would like to see a big chunk of that money go towards sending humans to Mars so we can find evidence of ancient life on Mars and all this cool science. And we're not going to get out of spending a lot of money in LEO until private capital comes in. And, and so to me, I see this real benefit. Are we, are we investing smartly so that we can get to where we need to be? And I think the private habitats are really intriguing. And I'm really looking forward to seeing that first private space station that does not have government money. It's private money. How does the effort to extend ISS to 2030 fit into all this dialogue? I think we need more time. You know, this issue of, of, of up and down mass and have we gotten the cost down? And it's, you know, just now we've got, we've got SpaceX coming on, on, you know, on board in the last um, couple of years, which has been really exciting with commercial crew. Um, hopefully Boeing will be following soon after. Why is that important? We need more crew members up on the ISS to be performing more experiments, to be getting at these, you know, people call it a killer app, to be finding what are the areas of research being done in low Earth orbit that are going to show commercial payoff. So with more astronauts up on the ISS, with more frequency of up and down mass, being allowing us to change those experiments and do anything, it's, it's making the research move forward. That didn't happen until now. We need some time. We need time to do some more science on the ISS. We need time for more um, technology development. And, and so I think this extension to 2030 is a good thing. But as that extension goes to 2030, you know, to me, we have to be really looking at, are we making the right investments? Are we hypercharging where we think the best, biggest payoff is so that by 2030, when the space station is a pretty aging thing, we are ready to say, all right, let's replace that with some commercial, maybe multiple commercial platforms. Maybe the government is a tenant on a couple of them. Maybe hopefully not the anchor tenant on any because now NASA's focused on getting humans out to Mars. Yeah, and, and w w what's it going to take? That's the big question. And I think you referred to the 
the up and down mass as being a, a big driver for it. Because I, I, I keep seeing with the commercial space stations, obviously we all want to see them happen, but uh, you know, what's it going to get to for, for, for tourism, for science research, for any private sector investment, what's going to be the thing that tips it toward, toward going? It, you know, it's not Mainstream. three launches a year, right? Yeah. Four launches a year. It's if you're going every two, three weeks, every month, you know, then to me, you're getting into a mode where something becomes, you know, it's not, I'm going up to the ISS and you, you might want to stay there for a year but every two or three weeks, somebody new is coming because the risk associated with launching humans up to low Earth orbit ha has come down to a level and the cost has come down to a level where we have much more frequency. Because then again, it becomes just something you do. And I'm, um, you know, I'm the complete nerd who I love science fiction um, because it allows us to look forward. So when you see something like The Expanse, you say, what's different? What is allowed as I know? You're like, oh, she's. You said, no, you said the uh, magic word on this show. That is The Expanse is the. Yeah, it's the <laughs> Take a drink. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. uh, all I've got is coffee. Um, so, um, you know, you want to get, you know, what's different about those worlds of the future where all of a sudden we have humans on the moon. We've got humans out beyond the moon. We have humans living in low Earth orbit, and it's ease of getting up and down, right? All of a sudden, that becomes no longer an issue. And so I really do think that this emphasis you see right now on, on launch, on launch capability is so important because it's a barrier. You know, what's a barrier between us and the expanse? Launch is, is, is frankly, access is a huge one. So I'd like to go back to your comment on the World Economic Forum Space Sustainability Rating, and thank you for your leadership on that that group uh, to put this forward. But a question of implementation, how do you think this rating can be implemented within the commercial industry such that, you know, they'll voluntarily, you know, conduct a rating, that behavior will change in orbit? What are your expectations coming out of that SSR? You know, when we conceived at the SSR, the thing that we really had in the back of our minds um, were the LEEDS rating. For, um, for people who aren't familiar with it, it's an environmental design standards that I do think in general most people are familiar with this idea that when you build a house or a commercial building, you know, if you're environmentally sensitive, you're getting a platinum or a gold or a bronze rating. And it got to the point now, right, where Government buildings in the United States have to have at least, I think, a lead silver rating, which means, you know, you're using water, you're using energy efficiently. Um, and so it started out as an industry developed standard um, that then became reinforced by government mandate um, and frankly also became like a. I don't want to say peer pressure. I'm trying to find the right word for it. It's a good word. Right? I mean, pressure, can you imagine someone now building something that not, that's not LEEDS rated? You'd be like, well, you're pretty environmentally bad. You know, and so this industry standard, and I really, we were really intrigued at the World Economic Forum with the idea, you know, you can have governments coming down from above, but that's so hard in this industry, which is a global industry. So who has the regulatory authority? And yet, because space is a global commons, it's in everyone's interest. And again, we're, we're seeing that in spades with this Russian ASAT test, right? You mess up low Earth orbit, it affects everybody. And so, so how do you get everyone to say, 
if we're going to preserve this, we have to sign up to rules of good behavior. And we have to really think about how we dispose of our spacecraft, how we put it in, how we put them in orbit, how we really make sure the space can stay sustain, sustainable. So this idea of really getting the industry to step up um, was one that really appealed. And so I think the proof's, you know, like in anything, the proof's going to be in the pudding. And my, my question is, are you going to have outsiders like you saw with the leads rating? Are you going to have governments say, hey, you know what? If you're a company operating on U.S. soil, I actually want to see your, your SSR. Mm-hmm. If you're an insurance company, you know, insuring a space company, can I see your SSR? So, you know, it's not going to be overnight. But my hope is it'll be a combination of, of good behavior and people who want to do the right thing with a little bit of outside influence helping push it until it becomes, well, of course, that's how you behave like LEED's buildings are and LEED standards are right now for the environment. So are you then, um, with, with everything happening, the, the difficulty of bringing an international coalition to, to drive something like this uh, and avoid a potential you know, race to the bottom, because it's all about money as well. Yeah. Um, and so many satellites being launched right now and so many stories about conjunctions and close approaches. Um, are you optimistic about this sustainability of Earth's orbit? And if so, why? And if not, how can we change that? What do you think? Um, I am worried, I would say. Um, and, and that's why, you know, debris removal. So it's like, all right, let's move towards let's move towards good behavior and let's move towards everybody doing the right thing. And in the meantime, let's head to our pets by making sure we have the technology to go in and clean up where we need to clean up because because you're going to have bad actors. And if you can get the majority, I keep hoping that what we're seeing right now, as you say, I feel like every every week I hear of another close conjunction um, and, and so the more this happens, hopefully people will start behaving, you know, in a more responsible way. But I think, again, this is why I'm so fascinated right now. I think the 20s are, are going to, to some extent, really define, are we going to make it through um, and get out to the other side? Or are we going to see our global commons really endangered? Um, by bad behavior. And, and right now we're, we're headed a little bit in that direction, but there are these other forces that I think are trying to push it in the right direction. So we'll see what happens. So I feel the public has a, a role here too. And, and I feel it's the space sustainability is starting to seep into the public psyche a bit. There's a lot more articles on this. The public is an important uh, component of how we build and design and go forward in science and technology. I'd love to switch a little bit to your current role as Undersecretary of, uh, of Science and Research at the Smithsonian. And I'm recalling Chris and I, we came to visit you a few years ago uh, and we walk into the Air and Space Museum and it's just, it's always a moment of awe to be there. And we're just wondering how is it like to work there and walk amongst all these amazing iconic symbols, but also amazing technologies that we've developed in, in the space industry and for government. 
you know, and I, I will say that was one thing that helped me get through COVID, you know, because obviously working at home, but I would I would go out, especially to our, our Hazi Center um, out by Dulles Airport in Virginia. And, and you walk in and you get this view of the SR-71 mm-hmm. with the um, space shuttle behind it. And, you know, it's just inspiring, right? And, it, and it's not just those beautiful design that have allowed us to accomplish so much. It's the stories about the people who used those, yeah. the people who developed them, all the people who worked on it. And, you know, once you start knowing those stories, it's almost like when you walk in, they're all like shouting at you because you look up and you see, you know, in the mall museum, you see Chuck Yeager's plane. Um, pretty soon when you walk in, you will also see Jackie Cochran's plane, who was the mm-hmm. first woman to break the speed of sound. Um, Chuck Yeager's plane has been in the Air and Space Museum for a long time, but we're getting Jackie Cochran's in, too. Um, and so these stories that are told, um, it is a really inspiring place. And, and I think increasingly we're trying to make sure that the stories we tell at the Air and Space Museum across the Smithsonian are stories that ensure that every kid who comes in the museum can really be inspired to say, I want to be, I want to be the next Bessie Coleman, you know, the first African-American woman to get a pilot's license. I want to be like Ellen Ochoa, the first um, Hispanic uh, American woman to fly in space. So I, I think these stories are just so individually inspiring um, that it's really an amazing place to be. But I also want kids to feel like these aren't just past things. Hmm. Like, you know, let's make sure we have we have the latest images coming down from James Webb when they come. And, and let's talk about the future of of putting people on the moon, of economies in low earth orbit of moving people to Mars so that a kid comes in and says, I, I want to be part of that. And so it's not just looking backwards. It's also looking forwards, which is going to be a big component as the air and space museum um, is renovated over the next, we've got about three years left of renovations as that finishes, you know, when people come into the renovated museum, they're going to see a lot of really future looking stories that I think are going to be really exciting. It's so cool. And I know you, uh, when you when you started at the Air and Space Museum as a director, one of the things you said was you really wanted to focus on forward leaning uh, inclusivity in in what you're doing. How do you feel it's going? I mean, it, you gave some great examples there. Uh, do you are we are we taking we're taking positive steps? Are we doing enough? Um, do you feel like when you were at the Air and Space Museum and now at your at your new position, are you? Do you feel uh, optimistic, positive on on how that's going forward in terms of um, diversity and inclusivity? I do. I do. I think I think, you know, the Smithsonian is really focused on how do you ensure we tell all the stories? Um, And in fact, we're working on two new museums, um, Museum of the American Latino and Museum of American Women. So we're even building two new museums to help help tell these inclusive stories. and increasingly, we're thinking about how do we reach digitally so that people around the world can can visit our collections, not just looking, oh, there's a picture of an artifact on a page, which frankly doesn't necessarily inspire. But again, what's the story behind that? Who was the per- person? What was the team like? It took all kinds of skills. And and I do think sometimes people are are a little intimidated by this idea of a heroic inventor. So it's not mm. that Orville and Wilbur Wright weren't really important, Right. But I also then like to say, but remember, it was a team of 400,000 people that literally 400,000 people that worked on the Apollo missions. Everybody from people who sewed spacesuits to 
lawyers, new accountants, you know, all these people made it happen. And so trying to also say space, the space business is inclusive. Um, it needs all kinds of skills. It needs all kinds of people. And we won't succeed without that. And so getting that story across, I, I think, is really fun. We have a new exhibit um, in the Arts and Industries building in Washington called The Futures that I also really love um, because it's really talking to people about um, what's the future you imagine? What's the future you want? Right. There are multiple futures out there. And how do you give the public a sense of agency? You know, I think a lot of people feel like the future, whether it's in space, whether it's here on this planet, the future is something that just kind of happens to you. And how do we help the public think about they have agency, they have decision making. Each of us help shape the future. And, and how do you remind people of that? And that's nowhere as important as thinking about things like climate change, where a lot of the research we do across the Smithsonian is around how are we restoring biodiversity? How are we protecting ecosystems? How are we protecting coastal areas um, for fisheries and for economic benefit? And so this idea that you're using science to help shape a more sustainable future is, is really important. And again, you want people to feel like, I can help shape the future too. Um, and, and that's why I think this idea of space becoming more inclusive it's not just a bunch of government astronauts. It's regular people are going to be able to participate, too, is really important. Mm. You know, cooperation in science can be a great diplomatic tool and talking about inclusivity of the global community. Do you think it's enough to bridge disagreements with nations? And have you seen science cooperation drive cooperation in kind of geopolitics as well? Well, I'm I'm pretty biased on this question because I did my PhD thesis on um, Soviet data of Venus. Um, and so I started out in graduate school going over to the Soviet Union when it was still the Soviet Union um, uh, and, and working with Russian scientists on Venus data and, and really trying to tackle these these big problems about why is Venus so different th from the Earth? Why did these two planets evolve so differently? Um, and these really great relationships, of which is obviously you can really see with the International Space Station. How do you work with countries where there are difficulties? Can space literally be the higher ground where you can find areas of cooperation, where you can say, even though we don't agree on everything, are there things we agree on? Are there, is there a higher realm? So, again, as we get that first people to Mars, you know, 15 or 20 years from the future, can we make sure it's an international crew? Um, because... You know, everyone who goes up to the space station, when they look back at the Earth, they talk about the overview effect, right? You can't see boundaries. You see this very thin, fragile atmosphere. We have got to work together if we're going to have sustainability in the future, if we're going to sustain this population, if we're going to solve climate change, if we're going to move outward into space. We've got to find out ways to get along. And if space is a venue that we can use for diplomatic relationships, even when we're having a lot of trouble getting along on maybe economic issues or other issues, it keeps those doors open. It keeps people talking. And I think you see that with, with Russia and the United States, right? There's a lot of issues there, but we still work on a practical everyday basis to keep the ISS running. Yeah. And then you, I mean, when you were at NASA, you did that. I mean, you mentioned Severe, which is such an awesome program. I think you went down to South America, didn't you? To to check out what they were doing there with that program also? I did, 
I did. I went to South America and I also was was over in Asia quite a bit. And it was it was really and and now I've been doing some work in Africa through the Smithsonian. And and you realize again this space data, um, you know, I loved the tagline of of Severe, which is um from space to village. Because especially with climate change, when you see the amount of, of rain you're getting, maybe it's too much, maybe it's too little, but it's not following historical patterns because climate change is upending weather because we're putting all this energy, heat turns into energy, that changes weather ultimately. And so, so the way farmers, for example, have expected when rains would come or when they would stop or how much they would get, we can use space data to help them figure out and become more resilient to the effects of climate change. And making sure they understand those data are available, how to use them is such an important thing. And that's exactly what Servere does, which is a partnership between USAID and NASA. And, and, and this, the importance of earth science data, and you see private companies, you know, like Planet, like other companies, you know, Maxar, who are collecting this great earth observation data. And you see them using that for a lot of good, which is, which is great. We need governments, we need private companies to say, how do we help um, the, the countries that are the most affected by climate change and the least able to deal with it? How do we use this powerful earth science data to help with that? So we're getting towards the end of the interview, Ellen, but we have a bit of a segment that we'd like to do, Chris and I, and it's just kind of some fun questions um, in a kind of a quick round as well. So are you up for the fun question segment? I'm, I'm up for it. All right, good, good. I'll kick it off. So we are talking about partnerships this year. Um, so we want to know from you, what has been the best space partnership? real or fictional in history so are we talking spock and kirk you know leia don't and away, han don't don't give her away too i'll many. give you She's i'll a, give yeah. two examples but <laughs> it, it and and you are a science fiction fan um yeah. obviously so you know think think what are the what is an ideal partnership that you've seen in science fiction or in real life you know, again, I'm going to go back to Apollo because, you know, what an incredible success, which I would argue was a strong partnership between NASA and the space industry. You know, you had companies like at that point you had Bell Labs, which was making invest amazing investments in in science. Actually, original Apollo scientists were all came out of Bell Labs. You had, you know, com companies you recognize now, IBM, you know, Rockwell. Um, they've all changed names at this point now, Raytheon, and, you know, um, you can name a big American company and Boeing, they were right there with Apollo and that partnership in saying, how do we go from a young president saying, we're going to get land on the surface of the moon. We didn't know how to do spacesuits. We didn't really know how to do trajectories that way. We had no idea how to get to the moon. We had no idea how to land on the moon. And we didn't know that much about the moon. And eight years later, we did it. And so to me, that's still the most amazing partnership where you had private industry and the government come together to accomplish something incredible. And that's why when people always ask me, like, well, how long would it really take to get to Mars? I'm like, you know, it's if if you see what we all the I have no ideas we overcame to get to the moon in the 1960s, we could easily get to Mars. Frankly, the, the I don't knows are a much smaller set. Hmm. 
So that's going to lead into a few of our other. So we have a couple of questions now. That one, that one needed a bit more of an explanation. Yes, We're now looking sure, for, sure. for, 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 no, no, it's okay. It's all right. <laughs> Whatever comes off the top of your mind. Yeah. I wish we could talk all night. This is wonderful. I love having these conversations. Um, okay. Ready? Here's the, here's the other rapid fire ones. When will the first woman take steps on the moon? What year? Uh, within the next five years. The next five years. I like it. Uh, how about the first person to step foot on Mars? 15 to 20, optimistically. So before 2040? I think around 2040. So, yeah, I mean, maybe 18 years. So I would say sometime 2038, 2040 would be my guess. So just, just quickly, when I was at space camp eons ago, they had us all in one room and someone was talking to us. I think it was an astronaut. And they're like, one of you is going to Mars. And it was going to be 2020. So I hope you're right, 2040-ish. Um, okay, so would you buy a ticket on a suborbital space flight if you could? Mm -hmm. Suborbital? You know, probably not. <laughs> you know, let's go back to that four-year-old thing. Yeah. No, it, it's just, um, I, you know, if I could go to Mars, I would go in a minute. Um, okay. But suborbital is, is probably not my thing. Got it. But you would go to Mars? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Interesting. I'm a geologist. I like rocks. Yeah, so. Okay, so we talked. Oh, so on the, on the Mars thing, will it be a commercial or government mission, that first step? Partnerships, partnerships. I love it. Partnerships. Is it? International, commercial, government, all together. There's no other way to do it. How about, oh, go ahead, Charity. Okay, I'll do that. Um, oh, this can be a fun one. Uh, so what will be the most incredible discovery by James Webb Telescope in the next year? Um, oh, gosh, I'm so torn between two different things. So this is going to be a slightly longer answer. So James Webb is going to have the ability to look back nearly to, uh, within, say, 100 million years of the Big Bang. And, and so that's going to be an incredible discovery because we don't know what we're going to find. When we look back with Hubble to within about 400 million years of the Big Bang, we saw galaxies, all kinds of complexity, way more complexity than we thought. So to me, that's one of the most exciting things, right? We don't know what we're going to find so and what questions that's going to bring. So that's one of the most exciting things. The other thing is, um, you know, we're going to be looking at the atmospheres of planets around other stars. And I know we're going we're gonna to find atmospheres where we say there's oxygen in that atmosphere. There's, you know, there's gases that are consistent with life. And so mm -hmm. that doesn't prove there's life, but that means there's potentially habitable planets around other stars. And that's going to be really cool. That's so exciting. I can't wait. Um, what planetary body should we visit next and why? I'm always going to say Titan. I'm on a mission called Dragonfly that is a um, octocopter. So it's basically a drone that's going to fly around the equatorial region of, of Titan. And we're pretty excited about that mission. That's, when is that launching? When is it? Uh, late 2020s. Okay. Oh, that's awesome. Um, all right. Last one. You got to be on NPR. Wait, wait, don't tell me. <laughs> I heard it. It was great. But I have a question. Were you more nervous to go on Wait, Wait or on Space to Grow? Our podcast. Wait, wait, wait. Oh, you know, yes. because I I didn't think <laughs> yeah. you guys were going to ask me weird questions about people who collected odd things. <laughs> they gave me no idea what the weird. I knew they were going to ask because I watched Wait, Wait. Here, I'd listen to it. 
Um, so I knew they were going to ask me weird questions, but frankly, I thought it was going to be about space, like big spaces or something about space. So when they went to people's really weird collections, I was like, whoa. <laughs> rock and, you know, I'm one of those kids that, you know, you're like, I have to get an A on every test. And when you're being asked questions where you're like, I don't have the foggiest. Well, that, that not my job segment is always just way too tough. I, I don't know how yeah. anybody gets anything. Yeah. Um, okay. And then, and then one, one more question. If you were in a, in a taxi in, in Bangkok, Thailand, <laughs> what song would you want to be listening to? Um, anything really from the eighties, anything from the eighties <laughs> would be my preference. And I would hopefully not die. Uh, Ellen, thanks so much for joining us. This was as fun as I expected. It was awesome. So thanks so much. Thank you. All right. Thank you, guys. Really fun. Yeah. Talk to you later. Hope to see you in this Bye. new year. Bye. <laughs>